and thanks for joining us for episode 10 of Speaking of MedTech, a podcast series from MedTech Insight on all things medical devices. I'm MedTech Insight Executive Editor Sean Schmidt. And I'm Steve Silverman, a former compliance director for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Device Center. I'm now the head of the Silverman Group, a consultancy for industry. Before we begin today's podcast, just a quick programming note. This is our final episode of Speaking of MedTech. After 17 years, I'm moving on from my role here at MedTech Insight as executive editor. And Steve, thank you for being my partner on these podcasts. You've been a great source of information for our listeners, and we'll all be excited to see where you take the Silverman Group. Thank you very much, Sean. That's very kind of you. And I wish you the very best in your future pursuits. Thank you as well for all of your excellent work on this podcast. It literally would have been impossible without you. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate that. Now, let's start the show. When the latest user fee package between the medtech industry and the FDA, a.k.a. Medufa 5, was agreed to in March, the agency was rubbing its hands in glee because it got something it desperately wanted, something it called a Total Product Lifecycle Advisory Program Pilot, or TAP. The FDA's device center explained during the Medufa negotiations that TAP will allow for earlier and more frequent engagement with developers with the goal of helping along innovative products by streamlining the device clearance process. And the director of the Center for Devices and Radiological Health, Jeff Shuren, says TAP will increase efficiency and get products on shelves faster, even telling U.S. lawmakers during a late March hearing on Capitol Hill that, quote, if we can resolve the problems before you send us a submission, you're not talking about saving days, you're talking about saving months or years. Shern went on saying the top pilot is, quote, designed to help innovators avoid pitfalls in early product development and ensure a clear, predictable path to market. But some in industry and lawmakers, too, weren't impressed with many wondering how TAP is any different than other current FDA programs, including its Breakthrough Devices program for novel products. Stakeholders further expressed concern that TAP goes beyond the FDA's statutory authority and even questioned its cost, $110 million, despite much of that money coming from leftover funds from Medufa 4. Also worrying device makers and others is that TAP would give external stakeholders like providers and insurance companies a voice in the pre-submission process. TAP will be reevaluated when negotiations for Medufa 6 begin in 2026 between the FDA and industry. So that's a 10,000-foot-high view of the TAP program, the Cliffsnos version, if you will. So, Steve, your turn to chime in here. Tell me what I left out of this primer on TAP, especially why FDA wanted this pilot program so badly it was practically salivating. Well, first and foremost, Sean, I don't know if I'd agree that FDA is actually salivating. Um, I've reviewed a lot of FDA materials, and I don't think I've seen anybody's mouths watering. Still, I agree with your summary, which covers TAP's major parts. I'll highlight just a few additional points. First, TAP is a pilot program, meaning that it's an experimental look at a new way for CDRH, FDA's device center, to do business. And as pilot programs go, it's a relatively small one, even with the $100 million price tag. 
Tab is getting a lot of attention, but I think that's in part because it's new and different from what CDRH has done before. For example, TAP targets participants like healthcare providers and payers who are outside FDA's jurisdiction. Also, Sean, industry is lukewarm at best about TAP. True, TAP is part of Medufa 5, which industry signed onto, but industry is paying for TAP with leftover funds from Medufa 4. There's no new money for TAP. Finally, TAP is a very narrowly scoped project. At the most, it will affect a little more than 300 devices over a five-year period. That's a minute portion of the total devices that CDRH will review during this period. So why is CDRH so gung-ho for TAP? In part, the device center says that it's learned, especially during the pandemic, that device makers want early engagement, meaning while devices are in development and before they're submitted for review. Also, TAP reflects CDRH culture. As I've said before, Sean, this is a forward-leaning group referencing CDRH. Center leaders scan the horizon for new ways to promote safety, efficacy, and high-quality devices. TAP is a chance to boldly go where no man has gone before. And, you know, shout out to Captain Kirk. Even if that journey raises questions about the device center operating beyond its authority. So the FDA says one deliverable from TAP is for the agency to, quote, support convening external stakeholders to provide early strategic input to sponsors. Now, in my opening spiel, I mentioned that having that external input was of concern. What are your thoughts on this? I agree that this raises concerns. Who are these external stakeholders and does CDRH have jurisdiction over them? Also, how much can the device center influence their behavior? Take device makers, for example. CDRH has lots of authority over their activities, beginning with pre-market review and continuing through post-marketing product oversight. So when CDRH asks these firms to show up, they listen, even if the request doesn't technically fall within CDRH jurisdiction. But when we're talking about healthcare providers, payers, and technology developers, that's a different conversation. FDA doesn't have authority over these groups, which makes bringing them together to the table tougher. Without a compelling reason, these groups are unlikely to dedicate scarce time and resources to an FDA program for early product development. Are these stakeholders a guaranteed no-show? No. But getting them to show up is a heavy lift that requires planning, incentives, and resources. Does the FDA have authority over these external stakeholders? It depends on who the stakeholder is. Like I said, FDA has scads of authority over device makers, and it even has authority over healthcare providers and patients when they use devices. But there are stakeholders for whom FDA's authority is much less clear. So take payers, for example. Does FDA need insurers and other payers at the table for TAP to succeed? Probably. But FDA has no direct authority and very limited indirect authority over payers. CDRH can ask and nag and cajole payers into joining TAP discussions, but at the end of the day, it can't compel. So how do you think the FDA will measure the success of this TAP pilot? I think that FDA is going to rely on formal and informal measures. So I'm happy to talk about the formal measures, but what I think is really interesting are the informal measures. 
Still, let's start with the formal measures. In designing TAMP, CDRH included a comprehensive and detailed set of measures. For example, CDRH will track qualitative and quantitative metrics throughout the pilot, and it's going to regularly review progress with industry. Assessments will also include a participant survey to, quote, measure satisfaction with the timeliness, frequency, quality, and efficiency of interactions. And importantly, CDRH has agreed to a third-party assessment of the program, which is going to be published by January 2026. And what about the informal measures? Simply put, Sean, I think that these will be stories. We've seen the Device Center use stories to show success in other contexts, like real-world evidence. Here, I expect CDRH to gather stories from device makers, payers, healthcare providers, and other stakeholders. These stories are going to show how TAP is instrumental in getting devices quickly to market, leveraging pathways that would not have existed without this early engagement initiative. So let's back up a bit from before FDA and industry finished their MEDUFA 5 negotiations. What was in the original TAP proposal, and how is it structured now? Are there differences? Did the FDA give up anything, or did industry? Sean, I can't tell you chapter and verse how TAP evolved, but I can highlight a topic that I've touched on briefly and that I think is important. When it comes to TAP, CDRH and industry are not singing from the same hymn book. CDRH enthusiastically supports TAP. Industry tolerates it. So how do I know this? There are some important clues. First, industry has never softened its view that MEDUFA 5 should bring CDRH back to basics. This means focusing on core review activities like meeting with device sponsors and efficient, predictable decisions on whether devices get to market. That's very different from TAP's goal of joining different stakeholders, some who are outside CDRH jurisdiction, to promote device innovation. And how much new money is industry paying for this pilot program? Zero. There was, as I said, a bucket of money left over from Medufa 4. And after arguing about whether TAP is even a good idea, industry agreed to let CDRH use some of that money for a narrow, limited pilot program. I wouldn't call that a vote of confidence. Well, that's for sure. So what else can you tell us about TAP negotiations? Like I said before, Sean, I don't know the complete evolution of this proposal, but in as much as it changed, I think that's because of industry's tepid response. Plus, CDRH realized that it was not getting full-throated industry endorsement of TAP. To see this, contrast TAP with NEST, N-E-S-T, all capitalized. This is the new device evaluation system that leverages real-world evidence to bring devices to market. NEST is a big deal. It's supported in large part from industry funds generated during the last round of MEDUFA negotiations. That's MEDUFA 4. And it's been turned into a standalone initiative operated by the Medical Device Innovation Consortium, or MDIC. That's the same group that sponsors the Case for Quality Initiative. And like the Case for Quality Initiative, NEST operates as a collaborative community. Now, compared to big-ticket initiatives like NEST and the case for quality, TAP is a little fish. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that $110 million has been set aside for TAP. 
and that a lot of that funding was coming from leftover funds from the previous user fee agreement. But where else is money coming from for this pilot? Sean, let me answer by focusing on a slightly different direction, which is where industry thinks that that money should come from. And the answer is not them. And this viewpoint has merit. We're talking about device user fees. So what are those fees supposed to cover? And to answer that question, we can look for guidance at the last 20 plus years of user fee negotiations. Consistently, Commitments from those negotiations cover pre-market activities, things like meetings with sponsors and timelines for deciding on device submissions. Basically, industry was paying for CDRH staff programs and commitments to review submissions consistently and timely. Now CDRH is saying, yeah, we get that, but we also want to use your money to drive product innovation. Is inspiring product innovation really CDRH's job? Yeah, maybe, but I have no idea why industry should pick up the tab for that work. If this initiative is a big enough deal, Congress should cover it with budget appropriations. Okay, but does TAP align with any industry priorities? Yes, I think it's aligned with industry priorities. The device industry, like FDA and CDRH, wants to promote innovation. But so what? The real question, I think, is who pays for that promotion? If I'm a device maker, I'm wondering, why am I paying FDA to promote innovation? My business requires me to innovate. If I don't, I lose market share to competitors who innovate all the time. Plus, there are already CDRH programs in place, like the Breakthrough Devices program that promote innovation. Where's the evidence that we need anything else? What's more, who's benefiting from the money that I'm paying If I have my own innovation programs in place and I'm already part of ongoing CDRH programs, who's getting the benefit of extra money for new programs like TAP? Is it other companies that haven't focused yet on innovation? If yes, why am I picking up their tab? So let's talk about some of the good things that could come out of this TAP program. I assume there are some, right? Yes. There's no question that good things come out of TAP. And we've talked about some of them. This gets back to innovation. Industry likes innovation, wants it, and relies on it. TAP promotes innovation. And in fairness, there could be a halo benefit for device makers outside of TAP. What I mean is TAP may push innovation across CDRH with multiple center components finding ways to innovate. And that benefits device firms generally, regardless of their TAP participation that innovation can lead to improvement that benefits patients as well. So those are good outcomes, no doubt, but serious questions remain. Is this the kind of work that industry should pay for, especially when firms already spend money on innovation? If not, why isn't TAP funded by Congress, especially when CDRH consistently says that congressional appropriations should fund most of its budget? Are the TAP performance metrics the right ones, meaning that they measure patient benefits? Just announcing that you're going to get work done and then telling people that you did the work is not proof of success. And what happens to TAP over time? Is it going to become self-sufficient? If not, will CDRH seek another round of industry funding during the next set of Medufa negotiations? That's not the best long-term strategy. 
Earlier, I pointed out that many question the TAP program because the FDA already has its Breakthrough Devices program. First, give listeners a quick primer on the Breakthrough program, and then tell us how the two programs intersect and how they'd be different. The Breakthrough Device program is a voluntary program for medical devices that treat or diagnose life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating diseases. So the goal is to get patients timely access to these devices by speeding up their development, their assessment, and their review. Participating device makers get FDA feedback as they develop products and throughout the product review process. Participants also get expedited product review. Interestingly, Sean, the Breakthrough Devices program is not the only way into TAP. In a few years, CDRH will expand TAP to include devices in CDRH's Safer Technologies program, or STEP. STEP covers devices that don't qualify for the Breakthrough program, but that still improve treatments for serious medical conditions. It's kind of a Breakthrough program's light. Different devices, but the same kind of CDRH engagement and submission review. So imagine this. It's five years from now. You run a device company and you're developing a great new product. You're thinking to yourself, how can I get this product quickly through the FDA review process and then to market? You do some research and you find two FDA programs. One is for life-saving and debilitating conditions. The other is for less serious but still important conditions. Both programs let you work closely with CDRH staff. They give you lots of feedback, lots of input, and both programs get you expedited product review. So that's great, right? You pick one of these initiatives. Now you learn that there's this other program, TAP. It also allows early and regular interactions with CDRH staff, helping devices get through the review process. Do you sign up for TAP in addition to the Breakthrough Devices program or STEP? Why would you? What benefits do you get that you're not already getting? Critically, Sean, I don't think that this scenario is just a one-off. I have no idea why TAP is being run through the Breakthrough Devices program and STEP. It seems like this raises huge questions about whether TAP can offer incentives beyond those that the Breakthrough Devices and STEP participants already receive. Interesting. So does this limit TAP to devices in the Breakthrough program? And is that a good approach? Does it limit TAP to devices in the breakthrough program? Yes, but eventually devices in the STEP program will be part of TAP too. Is that a good idea? Uh, I just don't think so. The important question is why? Why fold TAP into the breakthrough devices and STEP programs? I suspect that the answer is innovation. So that is, TAP is designed to spur innovation and the breakthrough device and STEP programs have the same goal. But I get back to my earlier question, where's the need? If breakthrough and STEP devices already get a bunch of important benefits, do they need whatever additional benefits TAP may offer? So do you think breakthrough program participants need TAP? And conversely, do TAP participants need the breakthrough program? Let's focus on TAP. Do TAP participants need the Breakthrough Devices program? I honestly don't know. The question again is what added benefits will these participants receive that they don't get through the Breakthrough program? And does TAP provide these benefits on a timeline that's meaningfully different and better than the Breakthrough program? 
I don't think that anyone, not FDA, not industry, definitely not me, has answers to these questions. In your view, how does TAP compare to other FDA programs that came about through these user fee negotiations? And I'm particularly thinking about NEST or the National Evaluation System for Health Technology. Sean, there are lots of important programs that come from user fee negotiations, and these programs benefit device makers and patients. As you say, Nest is a good example. It's legit, it's well-funded, and it drives multiple initiatives that advance CDRH and industry use of real-world evidence. More important, Nest has a full-fledged infrastructure CDRH handed operational responsibility to MDIC. That's a separate standalone organization that leads big initiatives, one of which is NEST. TAP is different. It's more modest in scope and in industry support. The metaphor I'd use is trees in a forest. NEST is a sapling, well-tended with good growth. TAP is just a seed in the ground. So where do we go from here? What must TAP do to grow over time? First, Sean, TAP must distinguish itself from CDRH programs like Breakthrough Devices and STEP. TAP must show that it offers something distinct that participants can't get anywhere else. Next comes the value case. In industry, a lot of careful thought and discussion happens before a firm launches a project. Sponsors have to explain what the project is going to do. This includes the need for the deliverable how much the project will cost, and the value generated in return. For TAP to make it, it has to answer these questions. In particular, it needs to show that money spent returns value. Okay, Steve, great conversation as always. We'll all have to wait to see how this TAP pilot shakes out, and I'm sure we'll all be hearing more about it in the months and years ahead. And with that, we'll close out this final Speaking of MedTech podcast. Just remember, you can check out the first nine episodes of Speaking of MedTech online now at medtechinsight.com. And while you're there, check out the very first episode of our new deep dive podcast that we call MedTech Monthly. That premiere episode was a freewheeling conversation about quality versus compliance with the FDA's Cisco Vicente and our very own Steve Silverman. Thanks very much, Sean. I really enjoyed the opportunity. It was a good time, and listeners should absolutely check that out. Again, that's MedTech Monthly, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And thank you to our loyal listeners for joining us for these 10 episodes of Speaking of MedTech. We couldn't have done it without you. Goodbye for now, and wishing you the best. 